Good morning. Our present sermon series, we're headed through the Gospel of Mark. And last week, we looked at the passage of Jesus' transfiguration on, on the top of what was described as a high mountain. I don't know, I can't remember if I said this in last week's sermon. I know I said it in the first service, but I'm not sure I did in the second. But this entire section is is actually a Mount Sinai part two. So you go back to the Old Testament, you have Moses on the top of a very high mountain, and what does he discover there? The cloud, the divine glory, the booming voice, the same things that Jesus experiences in his transfiguration. Then Moses, he descends down into the valley, and his face is radiant. It's shining. There's, there's almost an aura that he projects. And when the people see him, they're absolutely amazed. Moses comes down the mountain. He goes into the valley. It's a demon-possessed valley. What does he discover? He discovers the golden calf, idolatry, faithlessness. Moses is furious, and he takes the stone tablets on which the Ten Commandments were written, and he throws them onto the ground. He's he's so angry. He calls the leaders of the people to come and rally beside him, tells them to strap on their swords, and in in a great act of sweeping justice, tragic justice, he puts to death thousands of people. Well, what I want you to see here in today's narrative is the, the Mount Sinai with a twist portion Um, that we find, verse 14 of Mark 9. And when they, that is Jesus, Peter, James, and John, came to the disciples, who were down at the bottom of the mountain, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. Immediately, all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, they were greatly amazed. Now, it does not tell us why they were amazed, but you get the sense that it had something to do with his appearance. Not necessarily that he was still glowing from the transfiguration moment, but there's something striking about his aura, striking enough that they are amazed and startled by his presence. So it goes on. And they ran up to him, and they greeted him, and he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Rabbi, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground, throws him down, and he foams, and he grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. There was an expression in that day that that goes... So it was, or so it is with the teacher, so it, so it is with his disciples. The idea being that disciples were supposed to be given the same authority and power that the, their rabbi. And so whatever their rabbi could do, they were expected to, to do the same. The poor father brings his son to the disciples, expecting that they would cast out this demon, and they don't. You get the feeling when you read this passage carefully that um, problem after problem keeps, keeps mounting up. 
Jesus comes down into the mount, uh, from the mountain into the valley. He has scribes resisting his disciples. He has disciples failing in their ministry. There's a fickle crowd that's gathering around and is maybe enjoying this entire spectacle. You have a terribly, uh, a, a terribly afflicted boy and, and, and father. And Jesus, when he sees all of the valley, he is angry. And he answered them, verse 19. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to, to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to Jesus. And when the spirits saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. You see here, kind of incidental, but an important part of the passage. Demons hate children. That would explain why some things are the way they are in the world today. They, Satan was a murderer and his his demons are murderers. This is a little boy who is, who's covered with burn marks and scabs and scars from the previous episodes. This demon has tried to drown the boy, cast him into the water, and has even rendered the boy mute at times, possibly because so that the boy couldn't cry out for help when he was being burned or drowned. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him, enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. So here's the spin, uh, the, the twist. Is this Mount Sinai where death comes to the valley once again? But Jesus took the boy by his hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Life to the dead. And then when they had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, what could, why, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So down from the mountain into the valley, into demon-infested valleys, uh, and Moses, Moses brings justice and death and Jesus brings resurrection from the dead to that place. And so what Mark is trying to help you see is that someone better than Moses is here. Someone greater. Uh, the, the, the Moses you people have always been longing for. He has arrived. In the sermon today, I want to focus on that incredible expression of the Father that is just dying to, to be preached here. It is I believe, help my unbelief. 
Like that is, I'll say it at the end of the sermon, that is the prayer that is appropriate in any and all circumstances and situations. I believe, help my unbelief. I mean, this father understandably doubts that Jesus can do it. The disciples, as it is with the rabbi, so it is with the disciples. The disciples weren't able to. And Can Jesus manage it? Well, I believe you can manage it. I don't believe. Well, I sort of believe. I need help to believe. Those words so perfectly capture the mixture of, of faith and disbelief that is present in every single Christian heart. I know that in some circles, doubt is, is almost praised today. Like, um, the more you doubt, the humbler you are, or, or doubt, I don't know, is very raw and authentic. But if you get on Bible Gateway later on and you, you know, do a quick search for doubt, you'll find that the Bible presents doubt largely in, in negative terms. Like, doubt is not a virtue. Doubt is not the goal. But doubt is very much a reality. And the good news is that Jesus is very patient and merciful with, with doubting people. So if you are here and that describes you, then... Um, you know, that's okay. What I'm going to try and do, first, if you're not a Christian, the first part of the sermon will be directed toward you, then, then to, the, to the majority of us who are in the second part. I'm going to try to help you move, take some steps beyond where, where you're at right now. First, you have to realize that all of your doubts are really a set of, of alternate beliefs. So if, in order for you to doubt belief or proposition A, you can only do so from a position of believing and holding to proposition B. Now that may seem like so intuitive and simple, but I don't think most of us process our doubts that way. This is something that Tim Keller, in his book, Reason for God, explores in some detail. If you doubt Christianity because there can't be just one true religion, well, he says that you, if you doubt Proposition A here, you have to recognize that, that Proposition B is itself a statement, an act of belief that you can't prove either. Like, it's not like you can empirically verify the fact that, there's, that, that there can't be just one true religion. And if you went to the Middle East this afternoon and you interviewed people and you said there can't be just one true religion, they would look at you and say, why not? Like, that's a, a, a very Western European American way, way of thinking. The rest of the world doesn't hold that as a universal truth. Well, I doubt Christianity because of its moral Aspects commands. I, I doubt it especially be, uh, its commands regarding the body and sex. It seems like, to me, everybody should determine moral truth for himself or herself. Like you've kind of heard that, that doubt expressed before. Maybe that, that's your doubt. Well, fine, but that too, when you examine it, it is a position of faith. I tried to come up with other uh, other examples of this, but 
I don't want to belabor the point too much. The only way to doubt Christianity fairly is, to, is for you to discover the alternate beliefs that are under each of your doubts. And what ends up inevitably happening is that Christ, people, skeptics, will require a heightened degree of, of skepticism and inquiry into belief A, the Christian belief system, but will largely give their own set of beliefs a, a free and uncritical pass. Like you require of one a whole lot more than you acquire of that which seems intuitively right to you. I mean, isn't that the case? It would seem to be fair. I find it, it's ironic because high school students and college students are people who, who pride themselves on being skeptical and kind of playing the devil's advocate and asking the hard questions and, and, and not accepting pat answers. And high school co- students and co- college students are very skeptical about many of the tenets of Christianity, but they are also, ironically, totally uncritical about, about their own belief system, their own views uh, on the rightness of, say, homosexual sick, sex, or um, on the rightness, there must be many different pathways to God. Um, so the fair way of handling things is to seek as much proof for your beliefs as you seek from Christians for theirs. And if you do that, if you will thoroughly examine what, uh, what's underneath proposition and beliefs B, then you're going to discover that your doubts aren't nearly as solid as you first thought them to be. Keller goes on. He says, I commend two processes to my readers. I urge skeptics to wrestle with the unexamined faith on which their skepticism is based and to see how hard it is to justify those beliefs to those who do not share them with you. And then I also urge believers to wrestle with their personal and cultural objections to their faith. And at the end, of, if, if both parties do that process, even at the end, if you remain a skeptic or a believer, you're at least going to hold your position with greater clarity and greater humility. There will be an understanding and a sympathy and a respect for the other side that did not exist before. So instead of having believers and, and non-believers you know, name-calling and denouncing one another, it will rise the level of disagreement and civility that takes place in our discussions. Ravi Zacharias is a very captivating, Indian-born, I think Canadian-raised Christian speaker who travels throughout the country and speaks on college campuses and in other uh, environments about the plausibility of the Christian faith. You know, as a public speaker and as a pu- public person, he receives a lot of mail from others. Plenty of hate mail, some fan mail, and sometimes sincere inquirer mail. He said, there's, there's one letter or email that I have received uh, years ago that really still stands out in my mind. And the writer simply asked me this, why has God made it so difficult to believe in him? If I, if I loved somebody and had infinite power, I would use that power to show myself 
more obviously. So why has God made it so difficult to see his presence and his plan? He says it's a very powerful question. One might say, why is God so hidden? And here's how he answered it. He answered it autobiographically. I recall the restlessness and turning points in my own life. Um, I was at a point where I had come to believe that life had no meaning. Nothing seemed to connect. I was still in my teens. I found, uh, I was still in my teens, and I found myself lying in a hospital bed after an attempted suicide. Basically, all my struggle with, with the questions and the despair led me to the path that I just preferred not to live at all. So there I am, recovering from my suicide, lying in a hospital room, when the scriptures, somebody brought the scriptures and read them to me. And for the first time, it seemed like God was directly speaking to my heart. There was a profound realization that took place that God is not only this impersonal force, but but he's actually a personal being and it um, and it drew me to plumb the depths of of what kind of personal being he might be so with a simple prayer of trust in my hospital bed that that day uh, th- I changed from a desperate heart that uh, to one that found meaning um, that began to find meaning in a new reality Why is God so hidden? Well, one of the answers to that question is he's not nearly as hidden as you and I make him out to be. Shelton has said before from the pulpit that that um, that man searches for God like a mouse searches for a cat. You know, the, the Bible, when you read it, takes a pretty pessimistic view about mankind's searching for God. It says that we end up repressing and, and suppressing a lot of oh, the fingerprints of his existence. But, but it's true that at this point, Ravi was genuinely sinking, and the, the turning point comes in his life when he realizes that God was speaking with him in and through the scriptures. Now, parents, your kids are going to come to you one day, and they're going to look up at you and and bat their eyes and say, Mom and Dad, how do we know what we believe is true? How do we know what we believe is, is actually true to believe? If they haven't asked you that question already. And you've got several decisions to instantaneously make there. of Where, where do I go with this? And you can answer that question a number of ways. But a big part of that answer has to be that I have heard God speak to me in the scriptures. Because the Bible is not only a record of God speaking in the past, it is his means for speaking today. And so you look your child in the eye and you say that God has really spoken to me. And then they look back at you and they're like, so what did he sound like? (laughs) You know? Um, And you say it's not Okay, God is invisible, son. <laughs> He's invisible, and so I've never seen him, and I've never heard his, his audible voice. But in the scriptures, I hear him speaking to me, and here's how. Um, he tells me what he's like, and he says I'm like Jesus. 
Like, if you look at Jesus, if you, you want to know what God is like, you just look at Jesus. He tells me in the story of, of, of redeeming loss, of coming to seek and, and save that which is lost. He, he shows both his love and justice, paying the penalty of sin, uh, giving his life as a ransom, triumphing over death and sin and misery in the, in the grave. Uh, he's this great dramatist. He creates a story where, they're, where all seems lost. And the antagonist looks like he's won. And then at the very last instant, he turns the tables and the hero triumphs over the grave and he, he, brings, he brings about new life and he promises a new family and he brings us into a new family and, and promises a new heaven and a new earth. And he says, that's what I am like. He's spoken to me. Very important that you uh, differentiate the voice of God like that, speaking in the scriptures versus what some people talk about when they talk about God speaking to them. Like, God told me to go down to the drugstore this afternoon and strike up a conversation with the first person wearing a pastel shirt, and I was supposed to tell them, you know, that's not, no, no, but, but when I read the Bible, he tells me, here is what I am like. He speaks to me, and I believe he's reliable. And so I am now committed to him, as he is to me. Later on in life, your children are going to come to you and, and ask you this question. Mom and Dad, why? I mean, come on. You, you haven't examined all of the thousands of different comparative religions in the world, have you? How do you, how do you know that yours is true and right? And the answer is you say, because I'm in a committed relationship of love and trust. Um, and that's what you, that's, we, most of us who are married, I, I would like to think all of us, but most of us who are married have faith that our spouses are not cheating on us. And if you believe that, if you're in a in that kind of secure, loving relationship, then that kind of keeps you from certain kinds of in investigations. You don't need to hire a private detective and open up their, their mail and read their email and, and talk to the boss and find out, was, he, was she really working late last night? I mean, like when you're in a perfectly secure, loving, committed relationship, that type of comprehensive inquiry can actually be quite damaging to a relationship. No, I'm committed to him. So no, I haven't explored all the thousands of different options. But I've heard him speak to me. The, the message that he, that he shows to me about who he is in Jesus seems like the most beautiful and proper uh, vision of God I could ever imagine. I'm committed in, in love and trust. And I pray. And he answers. I think that your prayer life is the most powerful indicator of whether or not you're in, a, in that type of relationship with God. I don't mean to keep any more prayer guilt on your head beyond what already exists, but... Um, that's it. 
that point I can actually bring out of this passage. So look with me. On it, uh, the very first, verse 29, he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. A puzzling part of the passage, who would have thought that there are different degrees of demons? That's strange. Earlier in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus had commissioned his disciples and said, I give you the authority and power to exercise, to cast out demons. Um, There. And they did. They watched Jesus do the same. And uh, we talked about a couple of those, how it wasn't a very elaborate hocus-pocus ritual that Jesus simply said, you, unclean spirit, come out of him. And they did. And so the, the disciples saw it happen, and then they they tried, they followed that exact same pattern, and it doesn't work. Why? Because this kind of demon doesn't respond to normal stuff. It requires special prayer, a particularly focused spiritual effort of prayer. And the thing I most want is when your kid comes to you and says, how do I know your faith is true? You can honestly say to them, because you and I have prayed so many times together about so many hopeless situations, and we have seen God answer us with his power. Can you say that to your kids? Have you prayed with them that that much? That many times? In situations where the normal course would just not work. <laughs> of course I... I know what I believe is true because God is because so many times with my little kids here we are at this position of utter weakness and helplessness and here is Jesus Christ with his all sufficient power and and might and how did we how do we bridge that chasm between the two we did it because we we just called upon him I mean, the beauty here is that you could even call upon him um, and, and only, uh, you can p- call upon him with such weak and pitiful faith. Like, the, the bridge between the chasm can be wobbly. It can be poorly constructed. It could be jerry-rigged to just barely being holding, uh, held up by a string. But if it is a bridge connecting you and your, your hopeless pitifulness and Jesus Christ and his his ultimate power, then it is a bridge where God is, his power is made to work. And that is what's going to, on those really skeptical Mondays, is going to, I think, win our children and our friends into believing this God who we profess. You say, we don't, I don't have kids. Well, pray with your friends. When they're sitting across the table from you in the coffee shop and they're unloading uh, their, about their problems and their struggles, why don't you just stop right there and say, hold on, what, uh, let's pray together. None, none of us rely on Jesus Christ like we should. <laughs> like none of us go to, none of us turn to Jesus the same way we would if he were, if we could see him standing beside us or across the room, we walk up to him and maybe shake, shake his hand or give him a hug and ask him a favor. None of us go that freely and confidently to Jesus as we would if he were visible 
Another way of putting it is that none of us are people of great faith. I've never met a Christian who would say, yep, (laughs) I'm a man of great faith. Are you a man or woman or, or a child of great faith? Well, then do you pray for more faith? I believe, help my unbelief. The prayer that is appropriate at every situation and at every time. Um, I sort of believe, and I want to believe, and I need help to believe. I need help to believe that not only you can do this, because you can do all things, Jesus. Everywhere you go in the Bible, life comes to the dead, health comes to the sick, catastrophe is reversed. I need help not only that you can, but that, that you will. So, yeah, if you just got to be praying, praying, praying with people, praying with totally sincere prayers of, I need help, even believing. Final point. I know there are people who think that I can't become a Christian because I still have uh, my doubts. Uh, I, I want to be certain, 100% certain in what I'm, I'm jumping into. We go back to Philosophy 101. If you recall, the, the Cartesian project, Rene Descartes, who was the 16th century uh, philosopher who wanted to come about a system of belief founded on absolute certitude, certainty. And and the way that Descartes thought he could do that, how he could construct a pyramid of 100% certain truths, is he would start on one foundation that could not, um, that that nobody could, could disagree with. So he locked himself in a Dutch oven, in a large Dutch oven, and he decided that he would doubt everything, absolutely everything. He would, he would doubt that there is a world. He would doubt that uh, there was a God. He would doubt everything, even to the point of his, his own existence. Um, at the end of his day in the Dutch oven, he realized there's one thing I can be certain about. I cannot doubt that I am doubting, and that if I am doubting, then I must be thinking. And if I am thinking, then I must exist. And so philosophy 101 was, I think, therefore I am. And it was from that position of indubitable certitude that I exist, he creates then this whole pyramid of, of, of certainty. Well, it was a failed project. <laughs> and what you may not be realizing is that your desires for just complete certainty, you're 300 years behind the times. <laughs> Like, if you, if you think that certainty is what's necessary for life, you pick the wrong species. <laughs> so when the Bible talks about faith, uh, the problem with the Cartesian project is it, it talks all about ideas and, and theory, and it talks in, if this makes sense, third-person pronouns, and it doesn't talk about first-person and second-person pronouns. When the Bible talks about it, it does. It talks about faith. Basically, faith in the Bible, in its essence, is trust. Is trusting another person, that they are reliable, that their word is true, 
that if they, if they say that this is the way things are, that that, that word is true, and I can, I can rely upon that. What God is asking you to do is not to be 100% certain, but, but, to, but to believe that he is trustworthy and to commit yourself to him as he has committed himself to you. I've said before, one of the reasons some of you sit on the fence is because you're afraid of commitment. (laughs) You're afraid. Afraid of being committed. Stop being afraid. I mean, if anybody has ever done anything to prove their love for you, (laughs) it would be this suitor. It would be this, it would be this man. Stop being afraid of commitment. Come to the waters and be washed and baptized. Come to the table and be spiritually fed. Become part of his bride. A bride is committed to her groom. We are in a marriage. But it was the the groom who first said, I do. (laughs) I think you'll see that in in the next song that that we sing. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, thank you for your word and for speaking us uh, to and through it. Would you help us to appropriate the message of Mark chapter 9, uh, verses 14 through 29, and in whatever way that our our minds and, and our souls need, wherever wherever there are pockets of unbelief and pride, would you put them to death. If we, um, if we have our doubts, would you show us all our, our alternative beliefs that are behind those doubts? If we have thought about faith in terms of theory and not so much in terms of, of persons, would you help us to change that? We, we desire to be in the, the richest, most gracious, most satisfying, committed relationship with you that is possible on this earth. And so we pray that you would make that, make that so. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.